My name is Erwin Fletcher. I'm an investigative reporter for a Los Angeles paper. You probably read my stuff under the byline of Jane Doe with the Hey, It's Better Than Irwin. Welcome to the now playing podcast Fletch movie retrospective series. A bit of a shady character, Mr. Fletcher. But I am adorable. Hosted by Arnie. You have journalistic integrity. Yeah. And you have a sense of loyalty. Justin. You're cleaner than most of the ones we get around here. You smell nice. I expect you'll be popular. And Stuart. Ladies and gentlemen, he sees more than he does know. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. You fucking with me? Come on. Be honest, Morris. Are you fucking with me? We hope you enjoy the show. Go ahead. Make my day. Today we're talking about Fletch Lives, starring Chevy Chase, Hal Holbrook, Julianne Phillips, R. Lee Ermey, Richard Libertini, and Cleavon Little, directed by Michael Ritchie. This is Arnie, the now-playing co-host who has sinned. I didn't take any Polaroids or anything, but yeah, I sinned. <laughs> and Stuart. And this is Justin. 1989... I remember this movie, I remember a lot of trailers coming out for it, I remember thinking, hey, I really liked that first Fletch and watched it regularly. Somehow I missed this in theaters, though. It just didn't draw me back. I think I watched the first one on video instead of seeing this in theaters. Mm. Well, that was the way to go, right? By the late 80s. Everyone was going to Blockbuster, the VHS phenomenon, and it was VHS by this point. Sorry, Betamax, but you were really failing in 1989. Yeah, people were renting. Things that weren't a huge hit get a second life. I feel like Fletch is one of those things that might have been forgotten. I mean, it's worth pointing out four years to get a sequel, but cable, VHS... That gives this movie some life. And so I think it gives Chevy Chase some life. It is possibly this and Christmas Vacation came out the same year. His last hits before he just kind of faded away. Oh, that's very possible. I do remember going to the theater to see this. And it was because I had watched Fletch so many times on VHS and cable over the years. So I don't know who I talked into letting me go. Because I mean, at that point, eighth, ninth grade. I would think, in 89, so I'm pretty sure my mom would have said yes. We might have said we were going to see something else and snuck in to see this at the multiplex, but yeah, I saw it at the theater, and I believe that's the only time I saw it, because even at that age, I was kind of like, huh, this is different. Well, this wasn't rated R. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the idea of it being something you let a middle-ager go to (laughs) on his own, I don't think would have flown too well. Depending on how, if your parents saw it as well, I suppose. Yeah, I maybe. But Chevy Chase, I don't know. He always had the stamp of approval. He seemed general audiences, even if, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit raunchy. I know I saw it. It was a rental. All I could have told you was that they spoofed Gone with the Wind with the poster. That's all that I remember. Which is strange, because I've read the sequel book to Fletch, and it's not set at a Louisiana plantation. This is an original storyline. They decided, probably wisely, that the 
book version of the character, the adventures he was having on the page, is not something that Chevy Chase would be interested in doing. Yeah, I always found it odd that they didn't go to the books, but completely original story here, a new adventure... It didn't draw in the readers, I don't think. I mean, this didn't make as much as the first film. It made just shy of 40 million profitable. I mean, it's a cheap movie to make, 8 million, but not huge success. A 25 million drop from the original. And 1989, we've talked about it. We had a series about it. A popular year for lots of franchise films. It would be easy for this movie to get lost, released in March of that year. But yeah, spoofing the South. They're go- they're going to take Fletch out of the hard-boiled noir detective. You know, L.A. is sort of like home. If you're doing a detective story, you want to set it in L.A. or New York. To put it in the Deep South tells me we're making a comedy. We're not making a mystery. This is going to be about spoofing the KKK, rednecks, televangelists, a different sentiment than busting drug dealers. And yet the mystery here is pretty solid, I'll dare argue. Okay, well, let's argue it. Give him a plot. We'll talk about (laughs) Fletch Lives. Chevy Chase's character Fletch is back, and he's quitting the news biz. He's inherited a large Louisiana plantation from his now-deceased aunt, so he plans to move there. Upon arriving, though, Fletch finds the estate in severe disrepair, despite the services of caretaker Cal, played by Cleavon Little. Fletch's aunt's lawyer, Amanda Ross, tells Fletch there's an anonymous offer for $225,000 to buy the plantation, but Fletch decides to stay a while first. Fletch and Ross finish the paperwork and they hit it off so they go to bed together, and when Fletch wakes up, Ross is dead. The police suspect Fletch may have murdered the woman, so he's arrested, and in prison he retains the counsel of lawyer Hamilton Johnson, played by Hal Holbrook. Fletch begins to investigate Ross's murder in the way Fletch does, involving costumes, fake personas, fake teeth, and the like. In return, Fletch is harassed and attacked by KKK members and a biker gang. A realtor, Becky Culpepper, played by Julianne Phillips, tells Fletch the anonymous buyer is up the offer to $250,000, but she won't reveal the buyer's identity. Fletch suspects the buyer may be Culpepper's father, Televangelist Jimmy Lee Farnsworth, played by R. Lee Ermey. <laughs> Farnsworth has plans to expand his Bible Land theme park across all the estates in the area. But the buyer isn't Farnsworth. Fletch realizes the land around his aunt's plantation is contaminated with toxic waste. Following the paper trail, Fletch discovers it was lawyer Ham Johnson who approved the delivery of the toxic ooze. Johnson wanted revenge on Reverend Farnsworth, who took all of Johnson's mother's money, so Johnson was trying to pollute all the property around Bible Land and ruin Farnsworth's theme park. Fletch confronts Johnson, who tries to kill both Fletch and Culpepper, but Johnson is shot and killed by Cal, who actually wasn't a plantation caretaker, but an FBI agent. The FBI had been investigating Reverend Farnsworth's financials, and Cal was undercover. With his plantation toxic, Fletch returns to L.A. where he gets his job back as a reporter, and Culpepper is with him, now his girlfriend, as credits roll. And as we start, I guess we have to remember the time when a reporter could just publish a story, and that was enough, right? You just put bad guys (laughs) away when you say, there's a Greek mafia at the Greek restaurant. (laughs) This is just confusing from Jump Street, right? Like, why make them Greek mafia when everybody's going to act stereotypical Italian mafia in this scene? You got Richard Belzer here, who's doing his best Don Viglio type of imitation, and Chevy Chase dressed up in a 
kind of crappy French maid outfit for some reason. <laughs> Comedy <laughs> or something that resembles. Yeah, a mixture of housekeeper and waitress for this restaurant where they're doing their fake books and saying all the money came in was fish. It doesn't sound like Watergate. I'll just put it that way. This doesn't feel like one that's going to get you the Pulitzer. But we want to reintroduce, again, four years. Maybe you remember Fletch. You might not remember he's even a reporter. I doubt I would have, frankly. It's the kind of thing where you just remember Chevy Chase. And so here he is, dressed up like a woman, being harassed by a Greek mafioso as he's running into the bathroom, jumping out the window, landing on the mobster's car. It kind of ends quickly. I feel like it's not enough to really be a good intro. You kind of wish there were a little bit more daring do, but I'll say this much. Chevy Chase is working harder this time. He's actually trying to do laughs. If you're putting on a dress, that's trying to get some laughs. I felt like he was very low energy last movie, and this is definitely going to have him turn it up a couple notches. And yet the one I'm laughing at most is the half-blind mafia guy who just has such a huge smile on his face and his accents and everything. I'm finding him funnier than Chevy Chase in a dress. I don't think I said it was funny. I just said he's trying. He's trying. There you go. That's what I was going to try to pin you down on, Stuart, because, yeah, last time I was perfectly fine with Chevy not going over the top, and this movie starts off right away and slaps you in the face saying, hey, the tone is going to be wackier this time. Mm Mm-hmm. And the point of all of this is really not that they busted this Greek mafia. They never come back. It's not a setup for an Act 3 return. This is just to say that Fletch is disgruntled. He did all of this work. He shaved his legs. And his boss is not going to reimburse the wax job. And it's all about money. We see that Fletch is in dire straits. He can't get time off. They won't agree to his expense account. And his ex-wife, Wendy, has sicked her lawyer on him. She needs even more money this time. Yeah, we brought him back. He was a good punchline for one scene in the previous film, so... I have to give the set dressing department a little bit of credit here. I feel like they went above and beyond to at least give the feeling of it being the same apartment from the last time for such a short scene. You know, we get the basketball hoop again and the bulletin board of all the Laker history and stuff there. Mm-hmm. Just sort of reminding you, because I don't know that anyone, maybe Arnie, you went back and watched the original before you watched this one. Most people wouldn't, I'd guess. <laughs> Here, you mentioned Christmas Vacation. There's a couple moments in this movie where I feel like Chevy doesn't know if he's playing Fletcher Clark Griswold and one of them is when he's washing the lawyer's documents and pretending to be all clumsy like this this is something Clark Griswold would literally be this clumsy Chevy is here faking being this clumsy just to ruin all the documents yeah this is what I mean about trying harder like uh, last time I felt like Chevy literally walked on observed other people being funny and made a wry comment real dry and here he is trying to give us physical comedy ruining this suitcase what have you it's not totally working i just want to at least acknowledge effort not an a for effort but effort (laughs) (laughs) not what i expected i didn't expect you to say anything was better about this one so i'll take what i can get 
And I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying that I feel Chevy wants it more. Maybe he shouldn't. I do feel like some of these early gags just don't play in the 21st century, right? When he's grabbing asses or hitting on women about In-N-Out Burger, all of this stuff is a little just uncomfortable. This is the first time I ever got the In-N-Out Burger joke. I never knew about In-N-Out Burger when I saw this movie in the past. To me, it's a shift in the character. These early scenes are playing like Chevy Chase doesn't remember who Fletch is from his last performance. I mean, it's been four years, and Arnie, you pointed out, he kind of feels like Clark Griswold here. Yeah, I mean, in the last one, he seemed kind of like a smooth, suave guy that women were kind of fawning over. And here, he's sexually harassing a woman who's disgusted by him. Yeah, I don't know if it's Chase who doesn't remember who Fletch is, or if it's director Michael Ritchie, because that girl... If it was Larry, if it was Gina Davis, who's now way too big to come back to this franchise in a small role, if it was her, she'd have been all for it. Or maybe it's the new screenwriter, who, again, did not write the original, is not the novelist of the Fletch novels, uh, worked on Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Moscow on the Hudson, Moon Over Parador, had some comedy bona fides, maybe that's what I'd call that, but uh, was not someone that created the character on screen and so maybe he's just writing something else but it is only 10 minutes into the movie at most when fletch gets the call his aunt died and left him an 80 acre plantation he can't get his time off work he can't get his expenses reimbursed so he's quitting and zippity doo da, he's off to louisiana (laughs) (laughs) now Refresh my memory, I think back in 89, Disney was already kind of trying to put the kibosh on the Song of the South stuff, right? They knew that was problematic then. Song of the South got a VHS release. Yeah, I distinctly remember, because it was geeky this way, cutting out ads for all movies that came into town. I would comb the newspaper and put it in a scrapbook, and I had Song of the South. Like, it came back to theaters in the 80s. So, Mm. they weren't as embarrassed as they should have been, I'll put it that way. (laughs) But Chase knows what he's doing here by saying, I'm not investigating a, a mystery, I am ridiculing the redneck racist South. Is this ridiculing zippity doo or is it embracing zippity doo Again, I'm reminded of Clark Griswold because this feels right there with European Vacation when he sings The Hills Are Alive with the sound of Griswold, only now he's doing it in a southern plantation, lip-syncing to the original zippity doo with an animated dog and an animated bird, and I'm like, is it celebrating zippity doo or is it mocking zippity doo it's a dream sequence, so really it's just extending the movie. It's filler. It's skits. <laughs> Let's never forget that Chevy Chase's heyday was on Saturday Night Live and that he's used to just doing little bits and being done with Well, I'd say his heyday is 70s and 80s movies. I mean, he was only on SNL for two seasons, and then he became too big for it and was the first cast member to leave and get movie deals. Really? Okay. In my mind, he was a SNL performer that, I don't know, his movies were kind of hit and miss, right? Uh, he became leading man material real quick, and that's why we got Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live, was his absence. Oh, interesting. Did not know this. But I don't know Saturday Night Live, so to me, what felt like he was in it all throughout the 70s, to me, it feels like he's doing bits. It just allows him to always be in the spotlight. It is We are never going to forget, I think Fletch is in every scene of this movie, grinning, and I'd use the word ridicule. 
There's a woman that just got plastic surgery on her nose. He's making fun of her on the plane. Like, I feel like if he's not grabbing ass, he's disdainful of everyone around him. He definitely ridicules the South. I was really wondering about the dream sequence. But once he actually gets there and is meeting Ross the lawyer and arrives at the plantation, really that's where all of the Southern mockery comes in. And Cleavon Little, I don't know that you could have cast this role of Cal any better than bringing in Cleavon Little, who has his own history of mocking racism. I mean, go ahead and spell it out for those that don't know. He's the star of Blazing Saddles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just figured everybody knew. <laughs> no, I, I, I can guarantee you most people don't know who Cleavon Little is. That's just not a recognizable name. But if you're going to have somebody here playing this sharecropper throwback 1800s persona african-american which is extremely uncomfortable to watch having him do it ironically is the one to do it here's the thing i wish it was a partnership i wish it was him and gene wilder I wish I felt like Chevy and him teamed up, but instead, like almost instantly, Chevy's making jokes about picking cotton and, you know, mocking his name, calculus entropy and all that. Like, I feel like Chevy is above it and above him. And so, again, I never feel like Chase respects anyone that he's standing next to. I'm going to go a different way because later on in voiceover, Fletch says he's not buying this routine that Cal is putting on. And I think this is right away the reason Chase is making the cotton picking jokes and emancipation proclamation jokes is because he thinks this is overplayed by Cal. And so he's responding to what he believes to be an inauthentic performance. Although he never figures out this is an FBI agent. We do get a little bit of this buddy cop vibe between them. I mean, throughout the movie, they do somewhat partner up and, you know, kind of buddy up. But I think they don't go fully into it because they want to leave Cleavon's character as a possible suspect throughout the movie. Somebody to be suspicious of. Correct. The one team up that I'm imagining, and I can't believe it because the screenwriter of Blazing Saddles wrote the first Fletch. So it's really... I mean, it's in bad taste for Chevy Chase to be like, let's take that scene of them dressed up like Ku Klux Klan, and I'm just going to do it. Not with a black guy. I'm not sharing the screen and letting him get any laughs. I'm doing it as Hank Himmler. And again, this is another setup for something that does not come back. The Klan does not play any role in the murder mystery to come or anything. I don't. Did they burn the plantation? I'm not, they can't even get the crosses on fire. I'm not sure they do anything. They're scared off by a shot, by Cal, when he fires a shotgun into the air. The thing that the Ku Klux Klan deliver is the message that they aren't there of their own accord. They were contracted. They were hired to go harass this house. So, okay, that's the big clue they drop. Yeah, I heard something about money. All right, I didn't quite understand that. All right, too clever for me. But yes, I would have loved to see the salt and pepper comedy, which was again was just a classic pairing, white cop, black cop together, you know, solving a crime. It really doesn't play like that throughout the movie. And I think you're right, in part because we're to look at this cow guy as possibly in on it. Yeah, because everybody's a suspect when that lawyer dies in bed and we do see the murder. And we don't know the color of the skin because the person's wearing these blue gloves. You're not to know anything about the murderer other than it's probably a guy because the fingers are kind of beefy. 
Yes. Of course, Chevy gets the girl, this woman that is the lawyer of his aunt. He had inherited this plantation. She's trying to help him figure out what to do with it because, surprise, surprise, it's not in a good state when he gets there. His fantasy of living on the plantation, you know, being served lemonade on the veranda. No, this is a... It probably should be torched. He probably should be happy when it finally burns down. But in trying to help him figure out what to do, she, of course, is undeniably attracted to him, goes to bed. And you're right. We have this scene of her chloroformed and injected with something and him disdainfully waking up the next day and making jokes about her being dead. <laughs> Again, weird tone. I mean, we, we, we witness a murder and he wakes up next to a dead woman and is cracking jokes for the next few hours about it to anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. That was good, but not that good. I mean, <laughs> really? Okay, so this is all about your sexual performance. All right, I get it. It's a comedy. We are not to care about the mystery. I still remember the line from the trailer. It's the only thing I think of when I think of this movie is when Hal Holbrook says, how was she feeling last night? And Chase says, she felt fine to me. <laughs> Some of the jokes hit harder than others. That's one of the better ones. But those jokes don't go over so well with Sheriff Billy Joe. All right. Really? Like, was this written by six-year-olds? Like, I'm not offended by stereotypes. I want to put it out there. Some people can't watch comedy that makes uncomfortable associations about any groups of people. And I get that. It can be off-putting. But this is uh, that the redneck cop is going to throw him in jail with a man who has women's makeup on and immediately trying to rape him. I mean, this is bad, right? This is just flat out. Don't you want it to look a little bit like reality? I don't think this was real. I think this was a setup. I think Ben Dover, as he's named, which I actually find a little clever, is there for intimidation and harassment reasons. I think he's there for the same reason as the KKK, to try and scare Fletch. Okay. I still ask you, as a comedy, is it hysterical to have this I'm going to be raped in prison scene? To be honest with you, it's the one line from this movie that stuck with me. I think it's the first time at that age I had heard the bend over joke. And okay. it, I mean, it lasted throughout adolescence. I remember kids making that joke all the time. Ben, bend over, you know? So um, it has a little stickability. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the problem is that I feel like this is made for a really young audience and it ain't for me. I'll just put it that way. The whole thing about, I don't know, because he works at the morgue and he definitely is implied about being a necrophiliac. I feel like that part is true. And I think we're to think that because he's Southern. I don't know why I always thought this was a setup, but ever since the first time I saw this, because he is working for the bad guy he will attack Fletch later in a hood, and he will go after Fletch. I thought this was one of the first steps of intimidation, was throwing him in the prison cell with Ben. You might be right, uh, but again, I, it doesn't change the fact that this is where the comedy is. And I just, uh, you're right, it played on the playground. And what does that mean now? Are you nostalgic for this kind of comedy? I'm not. I didn't realize... I'd only seen this on VHS. This is my first time seeing it digitally. I don't think I could see that he was wearing makeup on a small TV on VHS when I was a kid. And now seeing it, I'm like, all right, it might be a little too broad. Prison rape, I can go with. Prison rape with makeup and horse molestation? 
That's a little far. But as we often say with comedies, they try to throw so many jokes at you. If you the first one doesn't hit, there's another one on the way. And a, a couple of them hit here and a couple of them miss. And sitting here in 2022 with, you know, our modern sensibilities, my eyes were drawn directly to the swastika on the jail wall through this scene. So I was I was distracted quite a bit trying to read some of that. And it definitely said Nazis underneath the swastika. And that, we're going to get a lot of this type of stuff peppered in. All this imagery is going to be peppered in throughout this movie. So you either get a little desensitized to it or it continues to shock you as you go through this movie. Yeah, this guy who I think is only identified as Ben Dover. I, I don't think he actually does get a real name. That might be his real name. He is in a biker gang called Nazis for Nanchez. So we're to believe that he is a neo-Nazi on top of being a horse fucker and, and whatever else. <laughs> <laughs> And he's the badass from Raising Arizona, so that brings a little bit of, you know, credence to this same type of character. You know, scary, mysterious, hairy, big guy, which is all he's really playing here. Sadly, I remember him more from Golden Child. He was the one that the kid touched and he turns good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this scene ends on a high note. Hal Holbrook walks in and he brings class to anything he does. I mean, he was so amazing on Into the Wild and here he is... A lawyer who's going to get Fletch out of jail. It's seen as the one ally that he has. In a town where everyone seems to be out to get him, we are, in Scooby-Doo logic, I mean, come on, we all know he's the bad guy, right? If everyone else is bad and this is the one guy that's good, he's going to be revealed as the bad guy. He is Mr. Smithers, the nice man in the Scooby-Doo episode that is unmasked as the ghost. I mean, it's just the disregard for noir and mystery, I think, is a loss. I didn't get it. What? I didn't get it. Are you kidding me? I didn't know he was the bad guy. No. How could you not? Because R. Lee Ermey is in this movie and he's always the bad guy. <laughs> it's obviously the bad guy. There's always two suspects in the Scooby-Doo. The one that obviously did it and the one that you never suspect. And the one you never suspect is the one that did it for stupid reasons. That's, that's just the classic formula. We haven't done the Scooby-Doo retrospective. Clearly, we need to. If you didn't see this coming, it's time. Scoob 3 has been made, even though it was canceled, so <laughs> slot it in. <laughs> oh, boy. I was, ki I was half kidding, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it plays both ways. You know, if we're talking about an audience sitting in this movie in 1989, yeah, most people aren't going to pick up this character is the bad guy. I don't think, I don't think your general audience is sitting here thinking, oh, yep, this guy's going to be the bad guy. Because that's the way it's written, obviously. He's overly nice. He gets Fletch home, gives him his card. He got him out of jail, gives him some tips on how to survive in the South as an outsider. So yeah, it's misdirection. And it's casting against type. Who would think Hal Holbrook would be the murderer? Yeah, he was known at this point as Mark Twain. He had done theater Mark Twain performances. I think, you know, I think that was... Yes, wholesome Americana, but again, they have this one moment where he drives by this giant amusement park, and he says, oh, that's my house right next door to Bible Land, and so, again, that detail, maybe I've just seen too many movies, or too many Scooby-Doo episodes. I'm like, well, there's the motive, uh, like, <laughs> it just feels like it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, I guess that raises the question is... What is a Fletch movie trying to do? Is it trying to be a good mystery or is it trying to be funny? Is it trying to be a little bit of both? I'd say a little bit of both. I think that there is supposed to be a plot and you're supposed to be able to go with it on that level, like a Beverly Hills cop film. 
you follow the plot, but it's going to be funny as you follow it. But based on the first film, I felt that was a lot of sketches and the plot didn't quite hold together here. I actually think the plot is doing better. The humor, maybe I'm not laughing at all, but (laughs) the movie is more coherent. Coherent. I'll just have to think on that. I don't know that I find it any more coherent and... I don't know that it's much of a plot. I feel like it is largely designed... Once it gets going here, it is largely designed to have Chevy Chase put on funny outfits. Again, he put on the Ku Klux Klan outfit. He's going to put on a bug exterminator outfit. It's actually the same Gordon Liddy outfit that he had in the first movie in the airplane hangar. The teeth and the pompadour are the same, but uh, he's even using Mr. Underhill's credit card to break (laughs) into the house. (laughs) I liked that because they didn't draw too much attention to it. He just mentioned Mr. Underhill. If you remember, you're laughing. If you don't, it's just going to rain right over you. And this was the point of the movie where I decided to start keeping a tally of how many different disguises we're going to get Fletch into throughout this movie. I wanted to see if it'd be more than what I remember from the first. So at this point, we're up to three. You know, he's been the maid. He's now been the exterminator, same as the mechanic and the clan member so far. And again, it doesn't count when he already wore this outfit. Don't you feel like Chase owes us new disguises? I guess people really love that airplane hangar scene. What I love is the Harold Faltermeyer score, which is back, though. I mean, they bring back it. Almost could be the exact same tracks from the first film, but I'm really getting into the mood of the film, thanks to Faltermeyer. And I'm glad I have that, because you mentioned this bug outfit. I'm fine with him reusing that costume. I'm not fine with what he does with it when the police officer comes in. That is some stupid shit. Yeah, right. So what what he needs is to find out what is in his aunt's files, And largely, it starts to connect her with the local televangelist. And then, because we can't just have... You're right. It's a mystery with comedy, always. We can't just have a clue. We need to have a gag. We have a deliverance joke. Here's a fat deputy coming in, convinced that the exterminator has a microscopic termite falling into his ear, and that he needs to get rid of it by getting on his knees and squealing like a pig. I think this is kind of where the comedy fails in this movie because it's the idea that Fletch is putting on characters to get out of tight situations is what makes him charming. And to have him reduced to doing something like this, this feels like something that was written for Dukes of Hazard and rejected. You know, I can see the Duke <laughs> boys talking Roscoe into getting on the floor like this, but to me, it feels like it's beneath the character of Fletch for this type of humor. Hmm rejected from Dukes of Hazard may be the worst insult I have ever heard lobbed at a film. <laughs> but he doesn't even get that many clues here because the file has been cleared out. So whoever is investigating cleared out the Bluebird file. Yeah, the whole thing could be over, right? If, it, if that were still there. He would know how Holbrook is working with a biochemical company. Yeah. We have to extend this. There's too many outfits to wear. We can't be done. And women to screw. You know, it's worth pointing out, uh, Fletch needs a romantic partner because the first one's dead. Doesn't bother him a whit, but we need to get a new one. They bring in this Becky Ann Culpepper as a realtor who has an offer from a mysterious company that's uh, eventually going to be revealed to be Everest and, and the one that's working with Bluebird. 
she could help him throughout this. But for whatever reason, I don't know. It feels like she's working for the bad guy, right? It does. And I think it's supposed to. A, she's bringing that offer from an anonymous person. And that anonymous person is probably the bad guy. But B, she's the daughter of Reverend Farnsworth, even though she uses her mother's maiden name, Culpepper, as her last name. She is the daughter of Farnsworth, who is, again, Arlie Ermy. We're supposed to think he is the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, he is a bad guy. Let's just put it out there. This is the era of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Heritage USA. They did have a scam going where they built old people at home watching television to send them all of their life savings so they could build a really cheap Bible amusement park. This is real. This really does feel like the most real part of the this movie is the, the indictment of that era of online televangelists and how, how gross and over the top they were. Yeah, but it isn't all that smart. It just feels like an SNL sketch. It feels very broad. If you have a thousand dollars in your purse, send that whole thousand dollars. Don't be afraid. I mean, just the amount of money grubbing, the obviousness of it. You could have a more subtle satire of televangelism for sure. Oh yeah, The Righteous Gemstones is a great show and that's currently doing exactly that. Watching this kind of made me want to watch that. I think we've established that Chase doesn't make sophistication. Like, that's not what he does. He sort of is caught in a juvenile sort of above-it-all attitude. He walks around the earth and tells everyone they're stupid. But he does go to the televangelist show and gets called up on stage. He, I guess, knew he would because Arlie Ermey wants to buy that property. And by giving his real name, Erwin Fletcher... He gets called up to be healed on stage. Does he actually give him money? Because it seems like he's rewarded with a tour of Bible Land and uh, the charges, the murder rap against him goes away. Like, he must have paid this guy off, right? No, this guy wants his property. He wants to expand Bible Land onto that property, but he wants it for free. He was apparently really working Fletch's aunt to try to get that for free and then at the end the aunt switched it so that Fletch was getting it so I think he's just really courting Fletch hoping to get that land but there was a line between him and Miss Culpepper that he did promise the land to Arlie Army's character I feel like in order for him to suddenly not be a murder suspect, he must have done something. Like, There's no guarantee, if not, that he's going to get this land. Without a promise, without some kind of indication, why would this guy believe that he's going to get it any more from the, the nephew than he did from the aunt? Well, as far as I know, Fletch has no money. (laughs) that's made pretty clear right so he has no money to give the reverend and he doesn't sign over the land so the reverend just kind of got screwed being desperate perhaps and and we see that we see that cal is like you know take the money and run and this realtor woman is very much like two hundred fifty thousand dollars. go ahead and do this i mean it seems like everyone really thinks that this guy won't have a better offer on the table, and could get hurt, could get killed, could be ruined if he stays. But he really thinks that this reverend is behind it. He's you know, talks to Hal Holbrook a little bit about it, talks to Cal a little bit. Then they sneak into the morgue. 
Yeah, to see the body? No, to look at the medical examiner records to find out what killed her. Yeah, and to look at her body. I mean, I, I, they, they do at least try, but she's already been cremated. I don't know if, you know, he thinks he can figure it out. But you might see the puncture. You might see the hypo if you looked. They literally open the slab with her and go, oh, empty. And then he then he climbs in it and then spooks the janitor for reasons. Yeah, and this is where we get a little hint of what a buddy cop movie version of this would have been. You know, this is where the two of them are actually working together and working towards the same goal and riffing off of each other. But it's just, it's all over too quickly. And so here's my suspicion. Am I wrong in this? I don't know. There's three amigos, I guess, to stare me down. But Chase doesn't work well with others. That's what it feels like. Chase wants the movie to be about him, and he doesn't want to share any of the laughs with anybody else. Oh, he has definitely done ensemble films and co-starring roles both before and after this. I mean, Caddyshack is probably the glistening example, and then not long after this, Nothing But Trouble. He's definitely co-starring in that. Oh, come on. Listen, that's his next movie after Christmas Vacation. It was at the height of his fame. To, he chose to co-star with Dan Aykroyd and John Candy and Digital Underground. Because Spies Like Us wasn't bad enough. I guess that movie was a hit, but I remember thinking that was so terrible, it made me not like Chevy Chase. But yeah, Nothing But Trouble is next level awful. Yeah, and Spies Like Us. I forgot about Spies Like Us. So he'll definitely do your team-ups. It's just, this is this movie isn't Fletch's friends. This movie is Fletch. It just seems in general, though. Again, like, it doesn't... Here's a perfect example to offer a leg up to another comedian. And again, he could use it. He seems to have disdain for everyone. To see him care about something or someone... I mean, I ask you, what does he want out of all this? Why doesn't he sell the land? He's not a justice warrior. I mean, he doesn't really care about what happened to that woman. I think he really does care. Otherwise, he wouldn't be investigating. I mean, she did die while he was in bed with her. I think that's motivation to care about the death. But why he didn't sell to begin with, when he shows up and it's a crap hole and he's offered 225000 why he doesn't jump at that I'll never know. He's just like, I'm going to stick around. Maybe if I wait, they'll offer more. And then when he doesn't take the 250, that's because obviously people have been trying to intimidate him to leave. What is going on? I think his instincts as an investigative reporter outweigh his instincts to take the money and run. It's hard to say. I really lose track of the mystery here. At some point, someone's trying to kill him. At the same time, he's going on a coon hunt. I don't understand the scene at all. Well, I mean, this is a functional scene. It's the Southerners are embracing him a little bit. And so he's actually going out on that coon hunt. And it is actually raccoons that they're hunting. Yes. Although the black guy does get out of there because he's afraid of what well, we think he's afraid of it. And then later we're to think he might be the guy that attacked him, except the guy that attacked him left the Lakers watch that the rapist took off of him when he was playing corpse. Yeah, we knew with that watch it was Ben Dover who attacked him. But the big thing is, he's walking through this plantation, steps through some mud into some chemical that will later melt his shoes. And that is the big clue that's revealed through the coon hunt, is that there's toxic waste just below the dirt on this land. Right. 
He'll send his high tops away to back to L.A. His editor is going to do all of this research for him <laughs> and kind of start to form the picture. That, again, we're to be looking at Farnsworth. He's looked into this televangelist and he was a used car salesman, petty criminal, under federal investigation. This is where he learns that Becky is the daughter. It's all looking bad, which again, that's Scooby-Doo logic. If it's all pointing to one guy, it's definitely not that guy. But it's also feeling more like a conspiracy at this point, you know? Like, uh, there might be one big bad guy pulling all the strings, but you can't be sure if any of these characters that we've met aren't in on it willingly. Yeah, I just get lost on all the other characters. They don't feel like collaborators. They feel like punchlines. Here's what may have thrown me. In the first Fletch film, there wasn't a switcheroo. The guy who approached him at the beginning and said, I want you to kill me, turned out to be the bad guy. There wasn't... And then... The cop, who was quite clearly a bad cop, turned out to be the drug runner. There wasn't a, aha, you thought it was this thing and it was that thing. So I'm not looking for that kind of a switch. I'm not looking for misdirection. There was a switcheroo. He was saying, I want you to kill me, and actually he was plotting to kill Fletch. So I think that was the switcheroo. But it wasn't a misdirection to the audience. Everything seemed false about that statement, I want you to kill me. So I think I was just, my guard was down. I wasn't looking at it. I felt like the first film telegraphed its villain and that this film, if they're telling me it's Arlie Ermey, who am I to argue? Okay. Are you loving this stuff? I mean, we will have lots of time. It's where the comedy lives and breathes. It's where we get the next outfit. Chase comes back in as Claude Henry Schmoot, two M's, one T, trying to claim that he has the powers to heal as well and sort of figuring out which... Is this televangelist claiming to hear the voice of God, but really it's a guy in the back room with a microphone? That, that is that the scandal? This is also taken from real life. There's been real televangelists who have been busted doing exactly this. Like somebody's intercepted their wireless communications where somebody is feeding them seemingly private information and only the Lord would be able to tell Farnsworth to know. So Okay, so I just took it for granted that someone was feeding him that information, but we're to think that he's pretending that the voice of God is telling him. Yes, it's supposed to he's he's a messenger of God and that's why he has followers like this. They could tighten this all up a little bit, but this goes on a long time and there's the woman that sins so much she keeps grabbing the mic and gets pushed down. There's this joke that I want to heal a Jim Bob and 30 people stand up. I mean do you like it? Do you love it? I don't laugh once during this film. I may smirk a couple of times, but just a couple. The humor in this film, maybe it was great in 1989, but it's not amusing me right now. Yeah, show me your hemorrhoids. Feels like something that would play to eighth graders. And again, when how old was I when I rented that? Uh, yeah, eighth, ninth grade. It makes sense. But time hasn't been kind and there's no adult sophistication. So what you have is a really raunchy Scooby-Doo mystery. Right. And we could be laughing at and having a good time with the nostalgia of this movie, but it sounds like all three of us aren't, you know, because mm -hmm. it feels like we walked away from this movie back then and even kind of knew it was troublesome at the time. Well, it's not even Scooby-Doo here. It's like, like Fred is the only one in the mystery machine. Like <laughs> Chase just needs, he needs other personalities around him. He's not fun as the one and only leading man. Yeah, I think Julianne Phillips, who was an actress I sort of knew from stuff back then. I'd seen A Fine Mess, and I'd seen Skin Deep. 
before I saw this. So I knew her, but she is not a good foil. She is not a Gina Davis. She just kind of is there for Chase to bounce exposition off of without ever feeling like she's in on it. I would have lost a bar bet that she was on Three's Company at some point before going into this <laughs> review. <laughs> I thought she was like one of the replacement Chrissies. Yeah, her hair was. Maybe she wasn't, <laughs> but that, that hair was, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with her for reasons they wind up at a biker bar, and I'm just like, where's Pee Wee Herman? It just feels like Chase saw Blazing Saddles, Deliverance, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and thought we didn't. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I can just take these gags about, like, walking into a biker bar and nobody's gonna know where I took it from. Doesn't it feel more like this movie could have been written as just a generic comedy with some of these tropes and somebody later wrapped Fletch around it. Yeah, well, yeah, because there's so many 80s movies where, like, walk into a biker bar looking square. You know, like, Eddie Murphy, again, 48 hours. Like, this is just, by 1989, this scenario is cliche. All of these scenarios are playing to ugly stereotypes. And what would make them fresh and funny is that they invented something some novel twist to this that, again, just isn't in Chevy's purview that he would not have disdain for everyone around him. Well, I mean, is homophobia the new twist that they're injecting here? Like <laughs> That ain't new. No, Eddie had plenty of that. But Ed Harley, he does a whole bit where he's supposedly the heir of the motorcycle company, and we get a chase scene, right? That's, if you remember, Fletch had that extended copser following him all around the city. Now we have bikers chasing him to a moving train, and we get some stunts there. Yeah, it's okay. It's I like the car scene a lot better, maybe because... Of this music they were playing, Fletch get out of town during that, and <laughs> here it's just scored, and I find it very unbelievable that Fletch would actually succeed in making that jump through the train. Right. And the real biker didn't. Right. That was the other thing. He's like, so this investigative reporter is that good on a hog? <laughs> Stuart, you just mentioned something, and I think that's what this movie's missing, is that intrigue of, hey, maybe the cops are in on this, too. And maybe he has to watch his back with the cops. That type of danger is just missing here. He just has to kind of watch his back that some backwoods hick might hit him with a shotgun at some point. Yeah, I wonder if they're cut scenes. The sheriff did throw him in jail at the beginning, but it was not in the rest of the movie. And and that deputy was made to squeal like a pig, but didn't get a revenge for it. I mean, it just feels like you don't want to feel like your protagonist is uh, ahead of everyone else. You want it to feel like things are closing in on them in noir and mysteries. And here it just feels like nobody's going to be able to hurt this guy. He can just costume his way out of any problem. And the one costume that I don't really feel was entirely necessary, and at the point it happened in the movie, I wasn't sure what was going on, is when he goes to Bly Biochem and meets up with Phil Hartman. Yeah. That's Phil Hartman? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't recognize him. Okay. Just the tiniest bit role, which would have felt more realistic, I guess, from the time if this had been four years early, because Phil Hartman is already a known quantity at this point. He had been on Saturday Night Live, he had done acting and other things, but to see him in such a small role was a little weird. And a non-comedy role. I mean, it should be said that this is not one of the funny scenes. He's not even really making fun of these people. He's trying to figure out what Bluebird is, and now we know that it is containers of bio-waste that are being shipped out to all the surrounding areas of Bible Land. 
including uh, on, I believe it's March 23rd, Fletch's plantation is going to get a whole dumping. It seems like if you're a reporter, you could put that in a paper and that wouldn't happen, right? You could get that stopped. <laughs> the fact that it, like at the end of this movie, the plantation is not only burnt down, but is like a nuclear Chernobyl site. Weird, but very 80s. And I don't think you want Fletch to end retired on a plantation. They need to give him a motivation to go back to L.A. Well, I don't know. The last one ended with him basically retiring to Rio. Right. Didn't pick up on that at all. I don't know how that... I mean, obviously, like a Bond movie, the woman he ends up with at the end is not the woman that he's going to have in the sequel. Exactly. But we're at the climax. I mean, and this is kind of where he's kind of figured it all out. He, he's at this Civil War party as Bobby Lee Schwartz II wearing a Union Gray and telling off, yeah, the nice lawyer, Hal Holbrook, I know it's you. You're the head of Everest. You're the one doing the polluting. And he's doing it all. It can't be cost effective, right? However much Farnsworth took his mother to the cleaners for her money couldn't be more money than hiring toxic waste to be dumped in all the surrounding areas. I think you get money for taking toxic waste. Like the companies pay you to dispose of the toxic waste. Oh, Okay. All right. I didn't think yeah. about the that part of it. So that okay. So he's actually making money by radiating his enemy. I don't know exactly where I'd go to buy toxic waste. Mm, yeah. But the sad lame twist here is that Holbrook's character basically his whole reason is, is that he has disdain for the area for no apparent reason. You know, he's like, oh, we'll get out of this swamp and live the good life. Well, it's his mother. His mother got taken by Farnsworth. And unfortunately, that's a late revelation coming through dialogue. And you know he cares about his mother because he's got the picture and he's got the urn. But Farnsworth took his mother for everything. And so he wants revenge on Farnsworth. It's not like he really doesn't want to live in the South anymore. It's that he wants to make sure this Bible land is irradiated. Yeah, he could either kill every guest of Bible land, every good Christian that just wants to ride on Noah's Ark, or he could just let the feds do their job and arrest the man because he is guilty of all the money laundering and would go to jail. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess it's more fun to do the toxic waste thing. And it's more fun to... Toss an urn in order to escape when Hal Holbrook has a gun on you and Ben Dover is backing him up. Yeah, and I, I guess maybe it feels a little more flimsy because in the original film, we're getting hard numbers to deal with, right? There's $3 million that, you know, supposedly spent on a land here and there and Fletch is going to get paid X amount of dollars to do this deal. Like, everything here is just kind of nebulous. You know, it's money is exchanging hands and maybe it would have helped if they threw, you know couple million dollar price tag on something to make it feel more rooted in the greed that is eventually what is behind all of this. I'd be satisfied if we just had good chase. Like if we're running through Bible land, I want to enjoy that. I want to watch massive Blues Brothers style destruction of all these biblical moments. Jesus up on the cross getting knocked down. You've got an opportunity here to really like piss people off and do big comedy. And they end up in a haunted house. Would you really have a haunted house at a Christian themed amusement park? <laughs> Christians are all about the Holy Ghosts. <laughs> I think they were demons. I, it seems like they were 
promoting demons or something. Yeah, I think it was saying that hell is going to get you. Yeah, I'm not sure. But anyway, you get my point. It would be really fun to run through biblical stuff in a crazy madcap way, but it pretty much ends up relatively quickly on air. During the televangelist broadcast, we have... Hal Holbrook hopping in with a gun, ready to shoot them all. Yeah, I mean, you already brought up Pee-wee's big adventure, and this, I mean, that's what they're doing here, but they should have done it with, like you said, a Bible Land twist, and it's just obvious that they don't have the budget for this. I mean, that was obvious from the first time we saw Bible Land. It was just the shittiest map painting I've ever seen sitting behind it. <laughs> But maybe that's kind of fun, too, because, I mean, I never went to Heritage USA, but I imagine it isn't as good as Disneyland. Just going to suspect that. <laughs> so a, a shitty amusement park could have been fun in and of itself. You know, it, it, I just wanted a bigger ending, I guess is what I'm really saying. I wanted to have fun going through in a big way this Bible land since it was so much of the plot. But it kind of, I don't know, it wraps up really quickly. And the surprise is... The one thing I didn't guess, the cool character, Cal, is the FBI agent. He's not just the servant with the waterbed. Thank God, because if that had actually been the character, how awful would that have been? I mean, we're only able to forgive the portrayal of Cal because it was a ruse all along. Right. Yeah, you know, you don't want to dissect this stuff too much, but Hal Holbrook's character coming through and the motivation doesn't make sense. Like, if he's already found out, just get out of town. Like, why expose yourself in front of everybody on national TV? Just to, what are you going to, what is he going to do? Murder Fletch on TV and then it's all solved? I don't know what his plan was. I think he wants Farnsworth anyway. I mean, if you had to shoot one, uh, shoot Farnsworth, right? It's Fletch gets in the way of the bullet for some strange altruistic reason I didn't buy for a second. Right. But he's only there because he chased Fletch down. You know, it's, the whole thing kind of falls apart into bad guy madness at the end. I get what they wanted and I wanted it too, but we didn't get it. And Fletch is going to go back. If there were going to be a sequel, it would not be here on the plantation. It is irradiated. And he's going back to L.A. with Becky. And that lawyer wants something. He's going to give Wendy that toxic land. The final punchline is that Wendy will be suing him for medical bills next time because she's going to live on a toxic <laughs> dump without knowing it. Remember, I said there were two Clark Griswold moments in this movie. This is the second one where he's acting really sad when talking to the lawyer and like, this is my family estate. And then when the paper's over the lawyer's face and he's signing it, he's making that huge smile, that wide open mouth grin. That just felt Clark Griswold to me. Mm -hmm. I would have to return to the vacation movies. Too distant of memory. I haven't seen any of them since the 80s. Two of them are classics. And then there's three others. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and there's some TV ones too with, I think Randy Quaid did some spinoff stuff. Oh yeah. Well, if we ever do that series, we'll pick up that thought. But for now, Justin Stewart, can you recommend Fletch Lives? Justin. <laughs> I want to. I want to be able to live in a world where there was an awesome follow-up to the fun Fletch movie that we talked about last week. But this isn't it. This feels like late stage chase. Stuart brought up a lot of the problems with, I feel like you do see his ego getting in the way of his performance a lot of times here. And instead of making it better than the first movie or expanding on the first movie, they just tried to go bigger with the comedy. And to me, that's not where Chase works. I do like Caddyshack and I think his character Ty Webb is just a subtle enough character where I think that's quintessential Chevy Chase comedy. When he's in his house and there's a young woman there trying to pick him up in Caddyshack, she's like, 
here's a check for $50,000. There's another unsigned check for $50,000. Keep it. You know, that's Chevy Chase's wheelhouse. Here, the first movie, I forgot how many characters he played. Here, he's going for it. And I'm sorry, he's just not a great, he's not a great actor. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. He's he's a comedy (laughs) guy, but acting is not his forte. So what you end up with here is just an hour and a half of Chevy Chase skits that all feel like misfires. So yeah, I wish there was some nostalgia for this movie. The little bit of the soundtrack score that came back from the first movie isn't enough to save it. So yeah, if, if you're feeling nostalgic for Fletch, watch the first one and leave this one in the rearview mirror. It's a, it's a not recommend for me. Stuart. Yeah, you use that word nostalgia. I think that's key there. I mean, Fletch lives in an era that I don't have a whole lot of nostalgia for. I, I think that's problem number one is that I don't... I would have probably liked this at the time. It would have been good enough rental in 1989. But now, this day and age, I don't know that even eighth graders would groove to this. It feels like something that should have been kept buried in the time capsule, right? Like this is, of its era, a marginal sequel to a movie that I didn't think tried hard enough. I didn't hate it. I'll put it that way. But I have... No love for it. And Chase, while trying harder, ends up being no funnier. I can see his portrayal of Fletch would never work for me. I don't think if they had made five more of these things, I probably wouldn't have liked any of them ultimately because it was him at the center. I just, something about him rubs me the wrong way as an adult. And I just don't want Fletch to live. I just let this go. Uh, Let it die. Let it be reborn. Let it get rebooted. I'm not against the concept, but I'm pretty much against this movie. It's a not recommend. I am in a position where I know that there are things about this film that are very bad. (laughs) But for some reason, Chevy Chase, Stuart, you really seem to dislike his performance and see it as he's looking down on everyone. But there's something about that performance that feels to me like effortlessly gliding through the film in a way that makes it fun to watch. Now, this film can't hold a candle to the first one. And the first one wasn't as funny as I remember, <laughs> let alone you. this one. All right. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. Yes. It's not <laughs> the classic that people make it out to be. No, it's a classic. It's just the... F- I didn't laugh out loud during it. It's not a great film. It's not a great film, even if you like it. I didn't hear you use the word great. But for this film, I enjoyed the performances, even if I didn't enjoy a lot of what was specifically going down. And you say Chase doesn't share the screen. And yet, when I think about this movie, I smile when I think about the performance of Arlie Ermey just going over the top as this televangelist. And I smile thinking about when Chevy Chase was there as the faith healer healing migraines. And I did find a few of the jokes amusing, even if I remembered them from the trailers and years before. I laugh at She Felt Fine to Me. It's not a great movie. You don't need to see this movie, but I think I have enough affection for the first film that I'm able to give this one the weakest of recommends. I just like seeing Fletch live. Arnie, that's where I hoped I would land on this after the review. That's where I was hoping I would be, but I just, I I couldn't get there. There's too much vapidness here. Oh, it's vapid. I'm not going to deny, but when I just look at my pure emotional state while watching this movie... 
I ended up having a pretty good time. I would think if you liked the first one, this would be good enough. If you thought that first one was great or pretty great, classic, then this would be not up to that status, but you would want to watch it. It's not, it doesn't tarnish that reputation. But if you don't like that style of comedy, and that's really what it is, is like, I don't think I'd want to watch any of this kind of movie now. It just, like, it gives me Police Academy vibes. I'm just like, bleh. <laughs> that's interesting. I think we all three came down in similar places, but for different reasons. Like, Stuart, you're just not feeling Chevy Chase. I like Chevy Chase, wanted to like this movie, couldn't get there. Arnie's giving it a pass because he does like Chevy Chase. Well, we're not getting Chevy Chase anymore. Fletch may live, but not with Chevy Chase in the role. It's going to take 33 years for people to figure out how to top him. And uh, we get that next week. A new movie from 2022. Confess Fletch. The whole reason we got to do this retrospective series. Yes, John Hamm in the lead role. I saw it the weekend it came out. I'm looking forward to watching it again and talking with, about it with both of you. Yeah, I'm actually excited to go into this one. Yeah, I, I have more optimism. And again, I read the book, so I'm, I feel like they'll, it, it won't be sketch comedy. Whatever we get, it'll be following the trail of what was the literary Fletch. Meanwhile, more laughs on Friday. Yes. <laughs> Midsummer. I think that's a well-known comedy, right? A black comedy, maybe. I'll just say this. Some people were laughing on the podcast. It's a pretty gruesome elevated horror movie that is capping our platinum series. We already covered The Wicker Man and its various incarnations. This is the Nubilidium Wicker Man. It's not officially, but it should in every other way be acknowledged as the spawn of Wicker Man. Made in 2019, just a few years old. If you haven't seen it, it's one that you're going to want to talk about. You're going to want to hear about it. Join us for Midsummer this Friday. Just in time for winter. <laughs> Who comes up with a movie Midsummer in December? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and leave it to now playing. And Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, go out and get yourself a nice piece of ass. Well, let me just say I'm glad that we finally solved this case together. We? We. We three. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Why don't we both relax and go in there and lie down and uh, I'll fill you in. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Five stars. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. Are you always this forward? Only with wet married women. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. All I needed now was a computer and a 10-year-old kid to teach me how to use it. Plus, we have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Titanic, E.T., 
Inception, Big Hero 6, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. I don't shower much. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. I had to keep digging without a shovel. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. If you've got $1,000 in the bank, don't be afraid to send the whole $1,000. $1,000 just to listen? I don't see how you can pass that up. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. Cash your check or And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. And bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia while you're out there. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Unless my people hear differently, that letter goes out at midnight. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Oh, I don't know. I guess I thought after a lifetime of hedonism, it was time to rededicate my life. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He truly defines grace under pressure. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. They're still working from home. Can you believe it? They're fucking babies. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Shut up and talk. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Okay, I'm very sorry. Uh, I was wrong. And you have to admit, it was a pretty good theory. I just missed a couple of it. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. That's why you're such a great reporter, you know the facts. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Well, now I'm no lawyer, but uh, I do believe that's a violation of my rights. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. You're not making this sound any less sketchy, bro. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Sincerely, I am Fletcher. P.S. Have a nice day. This is the first time I ever got the In-N-Out Burger joke. I never knew about In-N-Out Burger when I saw this movie in the past. (laughs) (laughs) I thought maybe you were going to say you didn't know about In-N-Out back then, but okay. Yeah, it's...